Hear now these sacred words from Psalm number 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph, triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for God has been good to me. This is the word of God for all the people of God. Good morning and welcome again to United Christian Church of Austin, where no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome and might end up in the pulpit. <laughs> again. <laughs> but thank you. It's been an honor to be here again. Please bow with me in prayer. Open our ears, O God, to hear your word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills that we may serve you and serve others now and always. Amen. Someone asked me this week what the title of my sermon was going to be, and I said, that's easy. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> that's been done 300 years ago by Jonathan Edwards in colonial times. But still, S-I-N. Not a thing you hear very often in our progressive Christian tradition, but there it is. S-I-N, a concept, a word part that's not truly understood by many. Even with all of our emphasis on education and the importance of intellectual pursuit, we almost never, virtually never, talk about this, its origins and meaning, here at United Christian Church. S-I-N. Let's see if we can understand it a little better by adding ology at the end of it. That's the study of something, right? Test it out. Biology is the study of life, right? Geology, study of seismology, the study of how big things are, right? <laughs> Psychology is the study of the mind, behavior. And if we take S-I-N and we add ology, we get sinology, not the study of signs. Anybody know what sinology is? Yes. It's the study of Chinese language, culture, art, and history. And you've seen it before, the yin-yang symbol, right? Yin-yang, you see it on tattoos, pendant on a necklace, maybe art on somebody's wall. The meaning behind this symbol is something I find very interesting and profound. So sinologist Stefan Fuchsfang had this to say about the yin-yang symbol. In Chinese, in Chinese cosmology, the universe creates itself out of a primary chaos of material energy. This energy is organized into cycle, cycles of yin 
and yang and formed into objects and lives. Yin is the receptive principle. Yang is the active principle. Yin and yang are seen in all forms of change and difference in nature. The annual cycle, winter and summer. The landscape, north-facing shade and south-facing brightness. Gender, male and female. Okay. Social political history, disorder and order. This notion of duality can be found in many cultures throughout the world. One perhaps unexpected place you find it is in the structure of some Judeo-Christian scripture. There's a poetry to it. There's a dance to it. This duality is in today's scripture and many others like it. The two parts, where are you God? Have you forgotten me? Dancing in and out with the other. God is here. God has riched me, blessed, blessed me richly, and I will rejoice in the Lord forever. That duality is present in Scripture in other ways as well. God and Satan, Adam and Eve, angels and demons, Moses raised by an Egyptian daughter, the Pharaoh's daughter, to be an Egyptian prince, and Moses raised by God to be a prophet to his people, Samson and Delilah, David and Goliath. This last one, the story of David and Goliath, is super important for us to understand the meaning of this morning's scripture. You know the story of David and Goliath. Israel is at war with the Philistines, and they are the two armies, the Philistine army and the Israelite army, are facing each other over the Valley of Elah for 40 days without a fight going on because it's come down to a champion battle, a single, a single fight. On the Philistine side is Goliath, who is, we're told is this enormous giant, probably 10 or 12 feet tall, and he is challenging the Israelites to come send one of your champions and fight me, and if I win, your people will be subject to me, and if you win, mine will be subject to you. And nobody wants to go out there and fight him. So we know that in the Bible it says 40 days, that just means a long time, but among the ranks of Israelite soldiers are several sons of the house of Jesse in their armor with their spears, waiting to fight, or maybe not, because this guy is pretty intimidating. And their younger brother is sent by Jesse to bring food to the brothers, to the elder brothers. And David comes up and he says some snide remarks about Goliath, and they say, do you want to go fight this guy? And he says, uh, sure. And they offer him all his armor and such, and he rejects it all, and he decides he's just gonna go fight Goliath with a sling. So if you've ever seen uh, these slings, they shoot a little, David goes down to a stream and picks out several little stones, smooth stones like this, and it was kind of a strap you put in there. These things are really deadly. They, when they fly out, the, the speed is amazing. Uh, you can see them on YouTube. I'm showing my nerd roots here by telling what I look at. But, uh, it's amazing how powerful they are, but they're really, really inaccurate. So let me show you. John, no? Carl, you want to stand down? Oh, you want a bigger apple? <laughs> okay. Hey, John. <laughs> Just checking on you. <laughs> All right. So, it's a miracle 
that he hit Goliath. Once he hits Goliath, it's, it's going to do some damage, but it's a miracle that he hit him at all, much less in the forehead and, uh, and killed him. So the reward promised to anybody who could kill Goliath was exemptions from paying taxes for life and also the hand of King Saul's daughter in marriage. So in this way, David of the house of Jesse becomes the son-in-law of King Saul and a member of the royal family. But that's a dangerous position to be in because son-in-law might be always a dangerous position to be in, I don't know. But it certainly was for, it certainly was for him because Saul was given into fits of, uh, of jealous rage. And here you have a war hero. David, everybody's singing his praises. David, you've, you've killed t- tens of thousands. You're amazing. You're wonderful. And David's like, could you tone it down, right? This guy's over here, and he hears what you're saying. And Saul eventually it wears on him, and he goes after David, more than once, actually. He's talked out of trying to kill David, and, and then he goes at him. David's playing a, a liar for him one in the episode, and Saul is just so angry, he throws a spear. And David says, that's it. That's, I'm getting out of here. And he spends years hiding in the wilderness, hiding from Saul's soldiers who are sent out to find him and kill him. And during this time, he composes many of the Psalms. Uh, my brother, who's a Presbyterian minister, tells me that uh, during the kind of the era of the baby boomers, the first half of the Psalms weren't very popular because they're so gloomy. You might, if you're a Monty Python fan, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and God is talking to King Arthur, and he says, those, it's like those miserable songs, those Psalms, they're so depressing. So you can see this is, there's sort of that thing going on there. He turns in his hiding to God time and time again, begging God to intercede for him. He gets nothing. Silence. A seemingly absentee God. He writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? When you examine your own life, Have there been times that you have felt abandoned by God? If your answer is yes, you're in good company. Jesus spoke seven times while dying on the cross. And the fourth time was an agonizing existential question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus Christ had a moment of doubt. But... He never felt that God was not there. He never felt that he was not in relationship to God. You can see it in his words. And the same is true of David. And this is key. We often harbor the illusion that we can fix all of our problems ourselves. We in the modern West are especially enamored of this illusion. We created the myth of the rugged individual who is totally self-sufficient and solves all challenges challenges by simply pulling himself up by the bootstraps. Such individualism has come at a cost. It is one of many factors that have brought revolutionary, though ultimately negative, change to our society. The 20th century bore witness to the weakening of Americans' sense of community the fracturing of the American family, and an incremental rejection of God and the church that continues to this day. Bereft of all former helpful connections, many of us are left to our own devices. David was. 
and it drove him into the deepest depression. He writes, how long must I wrestle with my own thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Have you ever done that? Wrestled with your own thoughts at like 3 a.m.? Your mind whirring, fixated on something, trying to solve some problem that you have no chance of solving by day and really no chance of solving in the middle of the night. Something that happened at work, something bad in the news, something someone wrote on Facebook or in some other format online or in a text. What did they mean? Did I do something wrong? How can I make things right again? And on and on and on. Beloved, bad things do happen. Terrible things do happen. Soul-crushing things. But that is not the final word. If all of these things that life throws at us and our natural response to them are the yang of this yin-yang conceptualization, then there's also the yin response, the yielding response, the moonlight, the acceptance, the feminine. David does not end his psalm in lament. He ends it with two statements in which he yields to the situation. David lets God be God. But I trust in your unfailing love, he writes, my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. I trust, I will sing. God does not appear and wave a magic wand. David's problems do not simply go away somewhere between verses four and five. I would submit that David does not have a change of heart but that his relationship with God is ongoing and reflected in all parts of this psalm, the complaint and the affirmation. David is open and vulnerable to God when he says, God, you have turned your face from me and I'm afraid you're gonna forget me forever. Verse by verse and step by step, David does the following in this psalm and in many others. Number one, he tells God what the problem is. God's side of it. God, it is like you have abandoned me. And his side of it. I am plunged into sorrow and my own thoughts are not making it any better. Number two, he petitions God for help. Look on me and answer. Give light to my eyes. Number three, he proclaims that he trusts in God's unfailing love. Number four, he rejoices in God's salvation. Number five, he acknowledges that he will sing God's praises. And number six, he shows that God has been good to him. Now, this last one's kind of weird, isn't it? Because David is hiding in a cave somewhere in the wilds of Israel, fearing for his life. He's been running from death for years. And yet he says that God has been good to him. He is both full of sorrow and full of joy simultaneously. This is a duality of understanding that we can all aspire to. This is wisdom. We cannot wait until everything is perfect in our lives to attune ourselves to the very real 
love of a God who is beyond all understanding. Over 100 years ago, British preacher and practical theologian John Henry Jowett wrote this. Christian joy is a mood independent of our immediate circumstances. If it were dependent upon our surroundings, then indeed it would be as uncertain as an unprotected candle burning on a gusty night. One moment the candle burns clear and steady, the next moment the blaze leaps to the very edge of the wick and affords little or no light. But Christian joy has no relationship to the transient setting of this life, and therefore it is not a victim of the passing day. At one time, my conditions arranged themselves like a sunny day in June. A little later, they arranged themselves like a gloomy day in November. One day I'm at a wedding, the next day I'm standing by an open grave. Yes, the days are as changeable as the weather, and yet the Christian joy can be persistent. Where lies the secret of this glorious persistency? Here is the secret. Lo, I am with you all the days. In all the changing days, God changeth not, neither is weary. God is no fair-weather companion, leaving me when a year grows dark and cold. God does not choose my days of prosperous festival, though is not to be found in my days of impoverishment and defeat. That ends the long quote by Jowett. And I want to end with this. The last words of Jesus on the cross were not, My God, why have you forsaken me? They were, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. May this be our aspiration and our meditation every minute of every day of every year. Amen.